Folks, it's with a heavy heart that I must announce that the fats are at it again. Hello, everyone. This is No Offense, the Daily Rune's official opinion podcast. Welcome to our winter edition of the podcast. Uh, my name is Keshav Thadimati. I am the Daily Bruins opinion editor. And why doesn't everybody go around and introduce themselves once again to our illustrious crowd? Hey guys, I'm Abhishek. I'm one of the assistant opinion editors. And I'm Jacqueline Alvarez, assistant opinion editor. Yeah, so just as Abhishek said, we are going to be talking about the things, the, the topic that's on every student's mind. Well, except, except for the ones who don't know yet, but frats. Uh, Jackie, do you want to give the rundown? Yeah, um, UCLA fraternities um, have been indefinitely banned from hosting in-house events with alcohol, according to a statement from the UCLA and Fraternity Council. The ban follows an alleged sexual assault in the North Village. UCPD responded to an alleged report of sexual assault um, on Saturday night at the party at 500 block of Gailey Avenue. The man, Benjamin Orr, who's 21 years of age, was arrested and charged with assault with intent to commit rape and oral copulation. Right, so serious stuff. And the notable thing here is that Orr was the 2016-17 president of, I believe, Theta Beta Chi? Theta Delta Chi. I, I don't know, I was thinking TDX, TBX, one of the three-letter three letter Greek institutions, which actually that consists of all fraternities. Are you saying they're all the same to you? Uh, no comment. But, um, you know, the campus has been embroiled in discussion yet again uh, about, you know, Greek life, parties, and, you know, the apparent sexual assault culture that comes with it, or, you know, sexual assault, sexual harassment culture that comes with it. And this instance has sort of raised the question yet again of, you know, does Greek life have a culture of sexual assault and sexual harassment? So we'll go around the room and ask that. So do you guys think Greek life has a culture of sexual assault and sexual harassment? Well, if we're talking about assault, well, we would need the stats and we don't really have the direct stats to say that. But I guess as one person told Daily Ruin, they felt one person who was part of the Greek life system, they told Daily Ruin that they felt that there was an increase in the number of gender-based uh, instances like crimes and harassment, that kind of stuff this year as composed to as compared to previous years. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think there are stats available, though, that kind of indicate that there is a, a trend or a problem in fraternity uh, Greek culture. For example, The Guardian uh, published an article that said um, that men who join fraternities are three times more likely to rape and that women in sororities are 74% more likely to experience rape than other college women. And this is just on top of the established statistic that one in five women will be sexually assaulted during their four years in undergrad. So I feel like this is a very important discussion to have. And we've seen so many cases of sexual assault um, and misogyny culture in Greek life. Right. I mean, we, we should add a caveat, though, several caveats. First thing is that, uh, you know, this isn't to say that all Greek life is, um, as with when you're making any generalizations, that it doesn't apply to everybody. So not all you know, fraternities and sororities or institutions affiliated with Greek life are, you know, engaging in rampant rape culture or anything, right? So, I mean, it's important important to note that UCLA's um, Greek life is, for the most part, like, you could consider it housed or somewhat affiliated with UCLA through its Office of Fraternity and Sorority Life. And there, I, I want to say about, about 60 to 70 groups, um, 
you know, fraternities or sororities, they're each governed by about a handful, I want to say six to eight, what are called councils. So there's like the Interfraternity Council, the Panhellenic Council, and the other councils that govern other sororities and fraternities. And not all Greek life you know, spaces have, you know, a house on Frat Row or anything. Um, so the houses you see on Strathmore are only like, I want to say, 30 or so groups. I read this off the UCLA page the other day. So like there, there are groups like uh, fraternities and sororities that are you know, academic, there are social ones, there are cultural ones, and they've been with UCLA for about 95 years, since 1923. So they, they do have a really long history with the university. So I want to transition to another topic that's been a discussion on campus, which is that the Daily Burn Editorial Board um, wrote an editorial saying that the IFC, the Interfraternity Council, which you know instituted the indefinite ban on fraternities, should make the ban on alcohol parties and alcohol events permanent. The reasoning is that you know fraternities are spaces that can be that are risky to women and increase the chance of sexual assault, and also that sororities themselves ban um, alcohol. And for full transparency's sake, I should say that um, first, Jackie Abishik and I. Uh, none of us are are affiliated with Greek life. And also, Abhishek and I are part of the editorial board, so technically, we the board was of that stance. So I will say that for full transparency's sake. But I'll, I'll pose the question here. Should the IFC or Interfraternity Council permanently ban alcohol events? Well, personally, I'm not really sure, because like as the editorial mentioned, that frat houses can be dark spaces, easy to get lost, but I feel that's more placing the blame on the house, you know, instead of the person who's committing a crime, you know, isn't it more on them? And also, I was walking down Brunewalk the other day, and I heard this guy saying that it doesn't make a difference for them. He was like, we're going to ho- move our parties into apartments, and now we're just going to have better apartment parties. And then he proceeded to lament how UCLA was becoming like UCSD. <laughs> uh, yes, UCLA turning into the University of California socially dead, I suppose. Jackie, what do you think? Well, I don't think banning parties specifically um, will fix the issue. However, I think that perhaps there will be a drop in instances because having parties with many minors, by the way, attending um free booze or alcohol, that just kind of sets the perfect stage for crimes, harassment um, to occur. So I think banning parties is a step in the right direction. However, there's more to be done in order to fix this um, problem. There's been the counter argument that banning these alcohol-related events and thereby parties in fraternity houses, you could say creates a quasi-black market where the parties would be happening, like Abhishek said, or the person Abhishek eavesdropped on, um, uh, that, you know, they'll be happening in apartments and other places in Westwood and other, other areas around the university, right? And that the university somehow cannot police, you know, these events. But I feel like that the challenge with that argument is that the university doesn't police fraternities anyways as much, right? The Interfraternity Council is composed of student leaders, albeit it, it is a subsidiary of the um, Office of Fraternity and Sorority Life, but the university doesn't go around writing rules left and right about to fraternities. If anything, it typically tends to just prescribe training sessions and um, some amount of regulation. But besides that, it's not immediately policing these events. If that was the case, we would have seen people getting in trouble for underage drinking left and right on every Thursday and Friday and Saturday, maybe Sunday of the weekends. I don't actually know when fraternities and sororities party. Thursday to Sunday. I mean, Saturday. Yeah. 
Maybe it's just every day. I actually don't know. Actually, I don't know either. <laughs> well, there we go. But I mean, again, this does raise the question, like Jackie said, like, does banning alcohol in in the space, in the fraternity house space, address the problem of sexual assault coming from the party scene? And that's a tricky question, which, you know, it has cultural ramifications. It has logistical ramifications. It just, it's, it's, not, it's not just one thing. So another concern that I guess students in Greek system could have about, you know, permanently banning alcohol in fraternity sort of is like, does this remove an essential, at least for that part, like major social activity of the organizations? I would say no. Um, a great example is sororities in the Greek system. They're not allowed to throw parties. They're not allowed um, alcohol on their premises, but they've done very well. There are many successful groups on campus that do just fine without throwing ragers and parties every weekend. Um, so I think banning alcohol or parties in general is, you know, not a big deal. It's not the purpose of the Greek system. And I think um, you know, the Greek system has gotten a really bad rep, even though there are some great things that members are doing. So I feel like if they really want to clean up their reputation, this is something that must be done. The current IFC president told the Bruin that uh, the IFC is considering what are called regulatory or risk management bylaws, I apologize, which some of which he floated include like, you know, having security guards at um, in fraternity houses Um to make sure everything's all right, um, and other security measures. What do you guys think about that? Do you guys think those would be you know, if, if effective in addressing the issue of sexual assault? Well, I guess it is a little bit of a Band-Aid solution, but I guess it would help to have security guards. So how, how would they manage the costs of that? Seems like it would be kind of expensive for them. I don't actually know how the financials would work out. Where does Greek have to actually get its money from? I guess students pay, like members who are part of the fraternity, like pay to stay there mm. as well. So that's where some of the money comes from. Hmm. I guess, yeah, that is, there are a bunch of logistical questions I can come up with regards to like whether these bylaws would be, uh, be effective. So I guess right now it depends on how long is this indefinite ban going to last. And that's what we should be looking out for in the next coming weeks if they give an idea of what they're going to do with that. And yes, I guess we'll just have to keep keep the watch out for that. And that's the final word on that topic. We'll be back with a totally different topic, laundry detergents. Kids, trash belongs in the trash can. Recycling materials belong in the recycling bins. And laundry detergent pods do not belong in your mouth. We're going to need a fact check on that. Okay, so if you guys haven't heard, there's a new, I guess you can call it social media challenge, which is called the Tide Pod Challenge? Yeah, this is there's a thing where kids are daring each other to eat Tide Pods, basically, and that's the gist of it. Um, so if you don't know what a Tide Pod is, it's... So, you know, in the olden days, or I guess we still sell laundry soap, detergent soap. Anyways, when when you wash your clothes, you put soap, right? And that soap is like liquid form because, okay, I'm not going to go into viscosity and whatever. But, <laughs> but you know, you put soap in the washing machine, you put, you put your clothes in there, you, know, you make sure the ratios are fine, make sure the clothes, comp, clothes, 
clothing composition is fine. And then you turn it on, right? But, you know, clo- uh, laundry detergent companies came up with this brilliant idea, or I consider a brilliant idea, to create these, like, um, soap pods. These are sort of, like, plastic pouches um, that you put in You put in with your clothes. The plastic dissolves, the soap leaches out, and, and you have your merry day, and you don't have to, you know, measure the amount of soap you put in, right? So one unit will do the trick is the idea one unit per load but somehow people have decided to stick these laundry detergent pods into their mouths and i'm not really sure why the rationale doesn't seem that clear to me so apparently it's because they smell good these tide pods smell good i wouldn't know because i just use liquid detergent like a normal person and they also look good and i don't know kids so it's one thing to note is that so right now abhishek jackie and i are sitting in my room staring at a laundry detergent pod. And uh, just a moment ago, Jackie was calling it, what was it, cute, precious? <laughs> it was going to pop? I don't know, it feels delicate. But the thing is that, it, that these pods are actually have been tested to be, like, for the most part, somewhat true-proof. Like, the idea is that if a, if a child or infant gets their mouth on this, which parenting, like, watch out. Like, don't put Tide Pods within your child's reach. But I digress. You know, if your child is, or if an infant is chewing on this, it's somewhat like you have enough time to like stop them from like actually breaching the packet. Um, apparently, it can cause seizures, uh, mental problems, stomach problems, respiratory problems, coma, or even death, according to the American Association of Poison Control Centers. And that's because uh, Tide Pods, um, the detergent in them, is actually a lot more concentrated than regular detergent because of the small size. And what's crazy is that a lot of people are actually getting sick because of it. Um, the Poison Control Center actually said that um, 15 days into 2018, um, they've received over 39 calls about Tide Pod uh, poisoning. And that's the same number they received in all of 2016. So the numbers are going up. Wait, does that mean like people's New Year's resolutions are like, I want to eat more Tide Pods? Because why would you do that? Like, the person next to you is like, I want to have, have a fit year. Another person's like, I want to spend more time with my family. And somebody else is like, I want Tide Pods. Well, I, th- I think it's worth pointing out that NBC News has reported that more adults have died from eating Tide Pods than children. Like, adults, what are you doing? Is it, like, young adults? Like it's, It isn't really broken up, so I really wonder what that number is for 18 to 24-year-olds, you know, college kids. So, like, some Joe Schmo 18-year-old is swallowing Tide Pods and ruining 2018 for us. Well, I guess that's a great start to the year. More specifically, a total of two children and six adults with cognitive impairment died over the past five years as a result of ingesting the pods. So, I guess this article is basically saying it could be fatal for adults with dementia. But you know what, kids? If you really want a challenge, just do your own freaking laundry. Speaking of laundry, I have apparently like two weeks worth of laundry is sitting in my room waiting to have a Tide Pod handed to it. And you know the best part about that? My laundry won't go into coma or die. Okay, folks, I think that's a wrap for this week. We'll catch you guys all next week in our next No Fence podcast.